Who says the Bible has to be boring? On the contrary, the Bible is the most thrilling book in the world. It's the only book with an invitation to join the very narrative you are reading. My goal is to be like your time-traveling tour guide, taking you into an exploration of scripture in search of precious treasure, timeless, life-giving truths that inform us of who God is, who we are, and how the story of everything really is His story. I invite you to join me as we learn to read the story, trust the story, and live the story, because there's no greater adventure than knowing the God of the Bible. I'm Brayden Brookshire, and this is Adventures in Theology. Many phrases or idioms we speak are understood culturally. In other words, certain phrases we know the meaning of are because we have grown up in an American context. But what about those who move to America in their adult life? Well, I want to give you some funny examples from real people, actually, uh, as far as a phrase that they thought was quite strange when they heard how we use it. So, for example, someone from Russia <clears throat> once said, When I first moved here from Russia, I used to think the expression, it's a piece of cake, was extraordinarily confusing. I mean, yeah, think about it. If you didn't grow up in America, then wait, what's cake have to do with this? When you say it's a piece of cake, how, why does that mean it's easy? <laughs> so yeah, I mean, that makes sense to us because we grew up here, right? And then some, this one is starting to fade out, but when we used to say, and I quote, that's sick, man. <laughs> Someone uh, uh, said, it took me a long time to make peace with this phrase. I mean, referring to something great as being sick is just weird. <laughs> and it's true. Like, that's like if you saw something cool and you're like, oh my gosh, that's so healthy, man. Like, why not call it something like that? And But we call it sick for some reason. That's sick and wrong, right? Anyways, um sometimes us Americans are sometimes the outsiders on certain phrases like this. Even though we speak English, we can find ourselves confused by idioms that are used in England. <laughs> For example, if you hear the phrase, I'll give you a bunch of fives, does not refer to someone receiving a ton of high fives, as I guessed. And so that's what I did, by the way, is I, I looked up a few phrases, British and idioms, and I tried to guess the meaning before reading what the meaning was. So I read the phrase, I'll give you a bunch of fives, and I thought, okay, um, a bunch of fives, that's probably receiving high fives. No, it turns out that means you're going to get a punch in the face. So clearly I did not understand that one. And then another one, and I quote, did you just fluff? <laughs> and that's not asking if you fluffed the pillows. That is asking if you farted. And that's about as childish of humor as I will ever get on this podcast, but yeah. <laughs> My point is that, uh, you know, today's text, as we continue in our series on the Sermon on the Mount, requires that we're willing to lay aside the assumptions that we inherently understand the terms that we're going to read. And there's two key terms in this passage that we're going to read, and it's the words salt and light. Salt and light. And we hear that often culturally. Well, it's become kind of like cultural idioms, like, hey, the church is supposed to be salt and light. And that's true. But let's make sure we understand what those are. And maybe you do have an understanding that is correct, but just shallow. And I hate to say it that way. But yeah, I just want to challenge our modern thinking and understanding of these terms to, one, not settle for a shallow explanation, even if you have a correct explanation that it's just shallow. Let's 
understand it more. Let's understand the depth of what Jesus is getting at because he's getting at something here, especially in the greater context of this passage. And then, yeah, let's lay aside the assumptions that uh, we would read these words idiomatically as modern readers and try to put on as ancient readers. So hopefully those few examples already have shown us that we deal with idioms today and different cultures and different speakers have to deal with these things. And so in a sense, like being a tourist in a culture and needing to hear what certain phrases mean, we have to understand these terms in a way that Jesus intended them to be understood. And I think that Matthew gives a few clues laid out in the text. So let's get into it. Matthew 5, 13 through 20. I'm going to read the passage in its entirety, then we're going to get right into some teaching here, okay? So Matthew 5, 13 through 20, read along, read another time, but here it is, I'm reading to you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown and trampled on by men. You are the light of the world, a city situated on a hill that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Don't assume that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For I assure you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches people to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commandments will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. And that is God's word. The statement Jesus makes about his followers being salt and light, let's just start here. They are indicatives. That is, in the Greek text, the way that they're communicated is that they are concrete realities of who Christians are purely by being a follower of Christ. It's not a possibility, hey, if you want to become a salt or light (laughs) or anything like that, it's it's indicative. You are. It is a declaration of someone as what they are already, just by being a follower of Jesus. This is important because Jesus affirms something about his followers before he even asks something of them. In other words, the ethics of the Sermon on the Mount come out of an organic relationship between identity and behavior. So Jesus' expectations for his disciples are for them to have their way of life match their spiritual condition and identification as his people. There's also... um, like something poetic going on here. This is another like miniature chiasm going on, uh, parallel structure. And so if you want to do like A, B, A, B, um, you know, A, you are the salt, B, of the earth. A, you are the light, B, of the world. Both phrases um, begin in the Greek with um, which means uh, you are, and then have salt and light, as parallels matching earth and world, which functions as synonyms referring to humanity. Jesus is not beginning to describe a new set of people, but is now applying another metaphor in his teaching as he moves from ascribing congratulations to those who are makarios to the intrinsic responsibility of those people, suggesting, as Jesus did, 
that his followers are the light of the world, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden, would have caused conflict with the religious leaders. I mean, if you think about it, Jerusalem was considered to be that city, uh, the light of the world, a city on a hill. People would have thought of Jerusalem. So now Jesus is subscribing it, first of all, not to a static place, not to a, a locale, not to Jerusalem where the temple at that time was located. He's He's ascribing the light of the world being to a people, a mobile people, a people who move around, and it's to people, not to a place. I think that the parallel opposition of putting salt and light, as we described as like this little poetic structure, seems to insinuate that there's more to the relationship between these two words and their meanings than random explanations as to like salt and light being just completely different metaphors. Again, I think Matthew's trying to have his readers draw a connection which is what we will now explore. So now, if, you, if you're if you familiar with rabbinic literature, you may have read uh, these sort of ideas before. I mean, rabbinic literature obviously speaks super highly of Torah, which, as it should, the Torah is awesome. But rabbinic literature had links between the Torah um, and salt as a metaphor. And, and I quote, The Torah has been compared to salt, dot, dot, dot. The world cannot exist without salt. Dot, dot, dot. It is impossible for the world to exist without scripture. End quote. My point is just to show you that something like the Torah, which obviously was held in the utmost of esteem, especially in Jesus' day, um, was compared to salt. And so obviously the salt metaphor shouldn't be taken as just like a silly or a petty metaphor. It's clearly an important one. And so salt being a metaphor of Torah elevates the quality of the metaphor that Jesus is pulling from, potentially comparing his followers to the Torah itself, potentially. The following things I'm about to say are even more important and more immediate to what Jesus is getting at. Salt was connected to the language of covenant, okay? Salt was connected to the language of covenant. And as is clear is, for example, in Numbers 18, 19, and 2 Chronicles 13, uh, 5, with this ancient idiom that says covenant of salt, which was a biblical phrase for a two-way agreement. Um, and I want to read those two passages to you instead of just referencing them. So Numbers 18, 19, I give to you and to your sons and daughters all the holy contributions that the Israelites present to the Lord as a permanent statute. It is a permanent covenant of salt before the Lord for you as well as your offspring. Okay? And then let's read Second um, Chronicles 13.5. Don't you know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingship over Israel to David and to his descendants forever by a covenant of salt? Okay, covenant of salt. So clearly, salt is the language of covenant, I mean, as was just read there. And, you know, there's actually, a, even in the modern world, a Middle Eastern saying that goes like this, there is bread and salt between us. And that means that the relationship had been confirmed by a sharing of a meal. The point is that it's not completely an ancient idiom. Some Eastern cultures still speak of salt in kind of covenant contractual language. And... Um, you know how the more shallow meaning of salt that I bet you do know of it being kind of like that preservation, having a preservative nature. Well, it's like that, but it's just taking it a little bit further, especially when you connect it with covenant. Salt doesn't ruin. It doesn't spoil. And so it's like speaking of the inviolability um, of an agreement when it's symbolized by salt. 
And so in a covenant meal, salt symbolizes the life and enduring nature of the agreement. And this is further evidenced in that salt is prescribed by God as a necessary ingredient in Israel's sacrifices. And um, you can see Exodus 30, verse 35, and then Leviticus 2.13. I'll just read Leviticus 2.13. I think that'll get the gist of it. And uh, Yahweh giving instructions on the sacrifices and such. And he says, You are to season each of your grain offerings with salt. You must not omit from your grain offering the salt of the covenant with your God. You are to present salt with each of your offerings. End quote of Leviticus 2.13. So, I mean, yeah, obviously it's important for um, the uh, sacrifices and offerings in Israel's uh, temple worship. And that's because salt is a purifying agent, you know, preservative, and again, just signifying the enduring nature of the covenant. Because salt was an emblem of incorruptibility and permanence. Adding salt to a covenant meal was a reminder of the covenant's binding permanence, since salt could not be destroyed even by fire. What Jesus is doing here already is making a point to say that these disciples of his, the ones described in the Macrosms, which already had an Old Testament backdrop as well, are now described as salt and light and are the ones who embody the redemptive purpose of the covenant in the world. And I think this makes um, sense in light of what the passage moves into regarding Jesus' statement, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets since he came to fulfill them. He doesn't destroy the covenant. He applies it to his followers, identifying them as the true members of the covenant of salt, since he calls them the salt of the earth. He's saying that you are the people who represent the enduring, incorruptible permanence and even purpose of the covenant that has has been going way back. And I'm going to say more at that at the end when we do these points of summary. So stick with me because we have more connections of covenant to be drawn here. Because not just salt, but light itself too is also a covenant term. Light is an important metaphor throughout the Bible and in rabbinic writings, which shouldn't be a surprise. It's used of God. Um, you know, the psalmist says, the Lord is my light and my salvation in Psalm 27.1. By the way, King David was said to be the lamp of Israel, uh, 2 Samuel 21.17, also in 1 Kings 11.36. And of course, you have Psalm 119.105, which says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Light is such a biblical metaphor. Honestly, you can't draw it just to one particular thing. It's really robust in meaning. But what you can definitely say, especially in its connection with salt, is that this is also a covenant term. I think I wanted to point to you that Jesus not only is bringing light into the conversation for the first time, in Matthew 4, 15 through 16, he already cited Isaiah 9 verses 1 through 2. So let me read to you Matthew 4, 15 through 16. And maybe in the show notes, I need to plug some of these verses, some of these key verses, because I don't know if you can just hear it and like see all these connections. So I'll make sure to put that in the show notes here. But yeah, so Matthew 4, 14 through 17, and this is going to be a quotation again from Isaiah chapter 9. And it says this, starting verse 14. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zubalun, in the land of Zophtali, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry if I mess this up, along the road by the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who live in darkness have seen a great light. 
And for those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Verse 17, from then on, Jesus began to preach, repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. That's Matthew 4, 14 through 17, quoting Isaiah 9, 1 through 2. This, this idea that the light has dawned, that the covenant has reached a climactic point. See, the, the covenant in the Old Testament had promises associated with it. And by Jesus drawing on these terms like salt and light, he's using covenant language. In uh, not only covenant, but in congruence with Isaiah's meaning, light carries with it this eschatological aim of bringing the revelation of God's good news to all the nations. So bringing all, um, and I quote, to salvation to the ends of the earth. So Isaiah 49, 6, Isaiah 42, 6, Acts 13, 47. I mean, gosh. Uh, and I wanted to show this to you in a parallel here. Isaiah 42, 6 says this, and it has this A, B, A, B pattern to it too. Um, and it says, I will appoint you, A, to be a covenant, B, for the people, and back to A, and a light, B, to the nations. So covenant parallels light as the words people Peter's nations. So for Isaiah then, the connection between God's covenant people being a light to the world is inescapable. This is like light, in other words, in Isaiah 42, 6 is basically the word for covenant. Oh my gosh, like it's in the parallel structure there. I will point you to be a covenant for the people and a light to the nations. And at this point, in Matthew 5, 13 through 16, should be viewed as including rich covenant language, but it's more than that. This is also a hinge passage between the macrisms, Matthew 5, 3 through 12, and Jesus's relationship to Torah, to law, Matthew 5, 17 through 20. It's like a doorway. And so while many scholars treat these as like two separate passages, like I mentioned already, I think people like N.T. Wright uh, are spot on to put this as kind of like one pericope, as like one passage to look and read together. Because N.T. Wright suggests that the metaphors of salt and light actually <clears throat> advance the case that the Messiah's, Messiah's arrival is the hinge between the old and the new covenant. And that's where the word fulfillment in the text begins to showcase itself as the glue holding them together, not divorcing them. And I think he's spot on. Jesus is not inaugurating something unprecedented, but something portentously presented by the prophets. He's fulfilling the promise, not tossing it aside. So rather than calling it null and void, Jesus ensures his hearers that his very objective is to fulfill the covenant scriptures. Um, so what he calls his disciples to, in this case, by calling us, not just as disciples who heard then, but if you are a disciple in the 21st century listening to this podcast, what he calls his disciples to is a great privilege because it comes with great responsibility. And that's why, as he says in verse 20, that their, our righteousness must surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And don't get hung up on that, how that sounds. Um, we're actually going to address that in the very next episode, next week. So um, we will tackle that next week. So I'm not going to say any more on that. My point is that he's calling his disciples to uh, really be that by applying the covenant language of salt and light to them. He's hitching them 
to the whole story of covenant that goes all the way back to Torah and beyond, to through the prophets and so on, to Jesus' day. He came not to set it aside, but to fulfill it through him, of course, and what he accomplishes, and through his disciples. And so the covenant imagery associated with the salt and the light really hearkens to Israel's vocation to be God's agents of healing and restoration in the world. The problem, though, was that, of course, the nation of Israel was not being that. The nation of Israel, Jesus' time, was behaving like everyone else now for centuries. They'd given in to manipulative power politics. Well, we don't see that nowadays, right? Of course we do. They were having religious factional divisions. I mean, kind of like how people make fun of Christians nowadays for having so many denominations. Uh, same was true back then uh, within Judaism. It wasn't so simple and clear-cut. You had the Pharisees, you had the Essenes, you had the Sadducees, and so on. Um, and they also started participating in militant revolutions. So instead of waiting for Messiah to come and to really do what only Messiah could do, as promised in the prophets, they started taking matters in their own hands through militant revolutions. And some were successful, uh, such as the Maccabees and such, until they weren't, right? And, and so instead of being the light of the world, showcasing the glory and salvation of Yahweh, as Isaiah 42 and 49 suggest, they'd become captive prisoners to the darkness that they were supposed to penetrate and push out. And that, that's the beauty of when Matthew 4 quotes the Isaiah 9 passage, uh, gosh, upon all the people who had been living and walking in darkness, in the shadow of darkness, a light has dawned. Oh, that's a great passage. And that then Matthew beautifully initiates Jesus' ministry of preaching that the kingdom of heaven has come near and then just segues into the Sermon on the Mount, which is where we are now. So Israel was less like salt and light and more like salt that had lost its taste. It lost its saltiness, which of course is a like oxymoron. <laughs> salt can't lose its saltiness. like that. So of course, when it does, or if it does, it it has no other purpose. It's best to be trampled on at that point. Like, what's the point then? Um, and it's also like Israel had to become like hidden, a light hidden under a basket, as the passage says. And, you know, making fun like, hey, no one does that. No one lights a light to then put it completely concealed. Like, no, you light a light so that it's shown in the room, so that it provides light for others in the room and for others to see. Since salt and light are covenantal terms, Followers of Jesus represent the true emissaries of the kingdom. We are essentially the ones who are bringing light to the world. We are helping light dawn in the world. And you know, people, as people walk in darkness, we are bringing the light. The light of the covenant. The light of God's promise. The light of God's story that has been unfolding all along. So, Jesus' followers are a combination of both old Israel and new Israel coming together to form this, like, true Israel. So, I'm not being anti-Semitic. I mean, a lot of Jesus' followers were Jewish. So, I'm not saying it's like, oh, Israel got it all wrong. He discarded them. He's like, no, no, well, it's, it's different than that. Time out. Just because you were born in Israel did not mean you were part of his true people. <laughs> you had to respond to the Messiah, <laughs> right? So, a concoction of his disciples from all all ethnic and social backgrounds. That's what he's getting at here. Essentially, followers, without followers of Jesus, the world would have no salt or light. That's why he's saying, like, man, you, there's such a responsibility with this. 
So both metaphors of the salt and light raise important questions here about how Christians are to involve themselves in society. So while the macrosms conclude with the reality that followers of Jesus will be persecuted in Matthew 5, 11 through 12, which we didn't like unpack those two verses, but I mean, you can clearly see it. Like you will basically, you know, bless or happier those who are persecuted, you know, for righteousness sake. Then perhaps surprisingly, this passage on being salt and light you know, it makes it seem like a whole different conclusion since humanity sees the good works of Christians and responds with glorifying the Heavenly Father. Is that a contradiction? Well, how can those two be true? How can, you know, it just be said that in the macroisms that we'll be persecuted for righteousness sake, but then also you'll then say that we'll be salt and light who people will see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. Which is it? And while many responses could be put forth, I, I think the most fitting is just to take it plainly that both are real. Sometimes the response to our engagement in the world involves being rejected, smeared, and even persecuted. And sometimes our engagement in society involves a type of revival where, where people respond favorably to the message of Jesus. Both are real responses, and we have to be ready for both. Nevertheless, there, I think there is an ultimacy to the influence of Christians being pervasive despite the inevitable opposition. The Father will be glorified by the good works of believers. And I love this. The, the, the word choice here for good, like the good works, helps explain the point further. The word agathos would be the Greek word for good, as in useful. And then there's this word kalos. Kalos is the word that's used here. And it means good as in beautiful. The world will be won over to Jesus, but... Not first without resisting it. Of course, we see that all the time. Christians may live beautiful lives by doing beautiful works and be persecuted for it. But if we persist, just watch how eventually the world will be charmed by the beauty of the way of Jesus. It's not merely a pragmatic, the pragmatic side of Christianity that draws people to him. It's the beauty of Christ and of his kingdom and the lifestyle of it that is maximally attractive, at least in my opinion. So again, we're, we're to be tenacious in living beautiful lives, modeled after Jesus, our rabbi and our Lord, even when we're rejected for it, knowing that eventually the world will be enchanted by the true, the good, and the beautiful life that only Christ can offer. So the goal of the disciples' good works is to not just have this cumulative applause towards us. Instead, it's like the power of a spotlight to have the collective bulbs of all of us in the Christian community concentrate on the Heavenly Father, bringing Him the standing ovation that He is certainly worthy of. I mean, after all, isn't it just God's light that's living through us? So shouldn't we just reflect, reflect it back on Him? So let's put this all together with three summarizing points. Number one, Jesus is calling us to be what he has affirmed we already are. As from Matthew 5, 13 and 14, you are the salt of the earth. And then he said, you are the light of the world. You are that. I mean, as salt, we are representing the incorruptibility, the permanence of God's covenant plan. And yeah, as the other more shallow metaphors do speak of, it's true. Salt is meant to add flavor. It is a preservative and all those things. There should be a particular flavor food has when it has been properly salted. And likewise, I think that the world receives a distinct flavor when followers of Christ season the world with, their, with our influence. 
and you know be as light we illuminate god's salvation and drive back the darkness um you know we as a christian christians as a community not just like me individually i am not the light of the world we are the light of the world we can only be the lights of the world when we remember um well that we are only illuminated as much as Christ has illuminated us. We cannot reflect his light without having his spirit first taking up residence in us. And so we can only reflect that light we ourselves behold. Point number two, what it means to be God's covenant people, true Israel is not about your ethnic origin, but about your faith orientation. So being part of God's covenant people spanning from Old Covenant, New Covenant, Old Testament, New Testament, uh, uh, you know, is, is, is not about this like, oh, at one point God just gave up on Israel. No, no, no. All along, it's never been about ethnic origin, but it's been about faith orientation. This is not a rejection of ethnic Israel. It's an expansion of it to include all kinds of people, which God even did in the Old Testament. And so which kind of segues into point number three that I want us to remember. You are commissioned to engage and influence society by being everything that is unique and distinct as a follower of Jesus. We're meant to engage society, not hide from it. Our holy calling is as salt and light. Better not make us think that we are to go hide so that we're not polluted by the world. Going back to the text, Jesus addresses this saying, no one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. We're supposed to have our light invade the world so as to draw people to the light. Like a lighthouse for sailors and on a dark and tumultuous sea. And our, our light shine, as our light shines, people see the glory of God and darkness loses more and more ground. And as one last clarification, and that's why I thought it was so important to tie this into the verses of 17 through 20 with the covenant language of salt and light because Jesus' mission is not to say that the law is wrong or irrelevant but to fulfill the intention of it through his life death and resurrection while teaching his followers how to follow the true spirit of the law in a world that looks vastly different than the world of the ancient israel i mean man we think about how different the world is today two thousand years from jesus well the world of jesus from when torah was originally written was vastly different so what he's doing in the following passages in the weeks to come as we continue to explore the Sermon on the Mount, really is an explanation of the true intention of the law, what it means to live by the spirit of the law in a world that looks vastly different. So if it looked different for uh, Jesus' disciples and he had to explain to them the intention, I think we better listen in. Just as important here, what Jesus says here by saying that, like, what he's saying is that I didn't come to put an end to the law or the prophets. What he's saying is, I didn't come to put an end to the biblical story. The law and the prophets was just a way of saying like the whole Bible at that time. I didn't come to put an end to the biblical story. I came to fulfill it, to be the answer to the problem, to be the hero who resolved the plot. By saying this, he is suggesting that those who he will initially do this for and then have them participate in the task are the very people he calls salt and light. Now that's really cool. And with that, we'll see you next time as we continue to walk through the Sermon on the Mount.